Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Mr. Gadgetson. Uh, there's been the passing of one of the titans of tech, and you may have never heard of him, but he's had an effect on your life nonetheless. Uh, you remember uh, a couple years back we lost uh, Dennis Ritchie and Steve Jobs all in the same time period, and I don't want to get into the various and sundry arguments about which one had a more profound effect. But uh, I found out just the other day and posted some things on social media and, and my blog, www.mrgadgets.blog at uh, mrgadgets.com. Uh, doesn't have a post very often, but I did post this up. And uh, it was that Wayne Green, a uh, well-known publisher of both uh, Ham Radio magazines, more recently uh, he was still publishing Ham Radio magazines, but also publisher of uh, computer magazines years ago, has passed. He was like 91 years old, lived a full life. And uh, there's some notes that I'll send in, and there's a quote at the beginning of one of these articles for somebody who worked for Wayne. Before there was the PC revolution, before the days of PC Magazine and Macworld, before Condex, there was Wayne Green. And uh, it really is quite a story of uh, Wayne Green. I remember that I first encountered uh, Wayne Green magazine way back in the beginnings of the revolution. Uh, I have mentioned it before, but it's worth noting again that I was very interested in electronics and, in fact, thought that I would, uh, would uh, pursue a career not only of performing but also recording in, uh, uh, working in a recording studio when I was in music school. That's right, I have a music degree, making great use of it uh, by making my way in technology as a profession uh, for all these uh, many years. And back in the 70s, when I first went to school, was the very start of the computer revolution. And they, there was lots of talk of digital audio coming along, and digital audio was going to revolutionize the recording studio and, and the you know the entire music industry, and so you, you better learn about computers now. And so I picked up a Byte magazine. Byte magazine, which has recently come back into existence as a website, was really one of the first microcomputer magazines that was totally dedicated to computers, and it was founded by Wayne Green. Uh, I learned uh, when I was doing some of this research about him that apparently he lost that in a divorce settlement with his wife, who then sold it to the, I think it was McGraw-Hill, uh, whoever the publishing company was that ran Byte for all those years. But it was actually originally started by Wayne Green. He also was the editor at the time of CQ Magazine, CQ being a call that you send out on Morse code when you're asking for somebody to communicate with you, and CQ Magazine still exists. In fact, I have electronic subscriptions to uh, a couple of CQ uh, publications, even though I'm not very radioactive nowadays, but I still keep up with that. So way back to the very beginning, the first computer magazine I remember actually picking up that was totally dedicated to computers was Byte Magazine. And I picked it up, and I read it, and I didn't understand at least three-quarters of what I was reading, and I, I put it down, and I picked it up again later, and that time through I understood about half of what I was reading, 
and gradually I taught myself about computers. This is in the very, very embryonic age of microcomputers here. And uh, he went on to publish several magazines, which I read on a regular basis. Uh, Chillabot Microcomputing, which was a really good one back here. This is all in the time of the S100 bus and just a, a plethora of different types of buses and computers. And uh, it was a really creative time, and everybody was trying to kind of invent whatever this was going to be and trying lots of different things. And Kilobot was a cool one because it went across various types of systems. So you'd, you'd see multiple articles in Kilobot, and one would be for one type of computer system. And, one of these were a completely different type of computer system and different ways that you would program them. So it was very good to, to keep abreast of, of what was happening, even though you didn't own that machine. You know, you could kind of read through the article, look at the code, and kind of see what was going on. Uh, also, lots and lots of uh, things that had to do with TRS-80 computers, you know, the good old trash 80s, the, the uh, 80 Micro, right, the 80 Micro magazine, which was a specialized magazine for the TRS-80 types of computers. And uh, there was also a Common Computer Magazine spinoff of that. And that was the only thing that I could afford as a single uh, you know, uh, guy back in that time period. I couldn't afford an Apple II for that color kind of stuff. But I, I could scrape together enough money for a color computer. And so that was a good one. And there were all these different magazines, and the reason why I say he has had an effect on your life, even though you've never heard of him, is a lot of people never heard of Dennis Ritchie, right? Uh, but the C programming language is, is the underpinnings of most of the computers you know, that are out there are running something that has C as its underpinning. It's not that much that happens in real assembly language anymore. It all happens in universal assembly language, right? I get another episode uh, you know, <laughs> on why I think that's maybe not a good idea. Maybe we could come up with a better way to do that. But uh, So in this particular case, many people of my age, you know, I, I was coming of age and going to college literally while well, all this was first starting to happen. Uh, graduating from high school in 1973, and there were only about half of my physics class my senior year that got four function calculators as Christmas presents. We were still using slide reels. And uh, so the microcomputer revolution was really just happening as I was going to college. Uh, and on into the 80s, many people have uh, espoused that their first computing platform that they had access to was you know, of that time period, maybe not the 70s stuff where everything was still literally sometimes being built in people's garages, like the original apples and things like that. but. Uh, more of the things of the Commodores, the Commodore VIC-20, the Commodore 64. And uh, a lot of them learned to program and develop their love for technology and their love for computers in this time period when they were actually learning to program by picking up a magazine like this and typing in the code that was in this magazine to get the computer to do something and teaching themselves about how the computer worked in the process. And Wayne was the publisher of many of those magazines. It was interesting to read the article about the uh, man who had worked for Wayne who was then a young man just out of college and how it was just a madhouse 
in terms of publishing all these things. They they were rich with uh, advertisers and uh, had magazines that were literally almost like books every month. I mean, there were hundreds of pages in these magazines with all of lines and lines of code. So a lot of people who I'm told nowadays it's all of us old farts that are <laughs> the people who are doing lots of programming out there, and we're all you know, trying to retire and getting ready to retire or at least thinking about maybe someday I'm going to retire, and who's going to step forward and do this kind of work for us? There's lots of people who are doing the front-end, you know, nice-looking GUI kinds of stuff and web page design and all these kinds of things, but there's lots of back-end infrastructure that's still being, you know, handled by the old gray-haired set. And so Wayne had a profound impact on a lot of us back then and literally was the, the way that we learned uh, some of the skills that were our first basis, at least, for getting into the profession of computing. So an interesting part about this, and I wrote about it in the blog post, was Wayne's magazines, the most interesting thing I found of Wayne's magazines back in the 70s was the fact that he would write an editorial for each of his magazines. And I would read these editorials, and you know, sometimes he would just literally PO me with the opinions that he was, and I would literally throw the magazine down and, you know, be, you know, talking loudly at it, saying, oh, you old man, you don't know what you're talking about. But the next, when the next magazine came out, it got to be that the first thing I would actually turn to was the editorial. Now, keep in mind, on some of these magazines, Kilowatt, I remember, was like this. The table of contents was actually the, the magazine cover. It would list right there on the cover of the magazine where all the articles were. And I had lots of favorite authors that I would always read anything that they wrote, even if I wasn't interested in the program that they were actually going to you know, go through with me. I was interested in the things that they developed and just you know, how they coded stuff was of interest to me because I was learning a lot about coding from them. But it wasn't that. Ostensibly, the technology was why I was buying the magazine. And so you would think the first thing I would do is, oh, here's an interesting article on writing a program to do this. I'm going to turn to that right away. No, it's the editorial. And even though he might have gotten me upset at him for something or other that he had you know, uh, said uh, in the previous months, that was the first place I would turn to. And so... Fast forward about 20 years, and it's the early 90s. And one of the, the you know, actual people who wrote articles who I got introduced to this particular author by a Wayne Green magazine 20-some-odd years before, and I followed him through the years. I would, I would always read his, uh, his articles in various magazines through the years. Uh, a guy named Jeff Dunteman. And Jeff mentioned in passing in an editorial, <laughs> there you go, got me uh, hooked on reading editorials, and in an editorial of a magazine that he was editing, he mentioned in passing that the code requirement was being dropped for the technician class license here in the United States. The SEC was going to drop the Morris code requirement. And, man, I was on that like 
flies on sweet stuff in the summertime. You know, that was, I had been wanting to be an amateur radio operator and get my license ever since I was in junior high back in the 60s. I think I mentioned in this, in some of these things where we've been talking that I used to build kits avidly back then, and, you know, some of the kits that I built were receivers, at least, for short wave, uh, and back then, it was much harder to get a novice class license. You couldn't just go to an amateur radio operator and have them give you the test uh, the way it is nowadays. You actually had to go to the FCC office. Now, it wasn't that there, that, that wouldn't have been that hard. There was an FCC office in Kansas City, and I lived in a suburb of Kansas City, but I could never get that code requirement. I could never learn the code and be fast enough. I was, it turns out I was learning it the wrong way. But uh, so I never, I dropped it kind of from that interest when I was in junior high. I did, ironically enough, go to some ham fests back in the 70s when microcomputing was first starting, but it wasn't because I was interested in radio gear. It's because ham radio operators were at the forefront of the microcomputer revolution and were really some of the people who were taking these wild ideas of microcomputers and development of different types of microcomputers and putting them into, you know, uh, using them, right, for uh, various things that they could do in terms of ham radio. So they were interested in technology in general, so they were early adopters, and they were a good source for parts. So this is back when we were literally putting together our computers with parts, and I'm not talking about plugging boards in uh, children. I'm talking about parts that would be soldered onto a board or wire wrapped onto a board. And it was a good source for those kinds of things. So I went to a couple of ham fests. It used to be a big one here in town. The big ham fest uh, was called PhD. Uh, and that ham fest has ceased to exist as a ham fest, but for years that was the big one here in Kansas City in the spring. And I went a couple of times to that. But for computer parts, not radio. So I got interested in radio, and I found, you know, the magazines. And I had bought a radio magazine or two back, you know, uh, in the day, in the 70s, but because they had computer, you know, types of uh, uh, articles. Uh, and I found there was a magazine called 73, and lo and behold, the publisher was Wayne Green, and he was still writing editorials. So uh, I adopted that, and you know, it wasn't just because of my affinity for Wayne Green. 73 was always my favorite ham radio kind of magazine because it was more about building stuff yourself. It had a lot of articles that were on building kits and uh, building your own antennas, and it just tended to have more home-brewing kinds of articles than the CQ magazines did or do and even the ARL magazine. So, you know, there is some specialized things in kit building, and there's always a column for that. But Wayne went out there and tried to get lots of people to uh, submit articles that were more oriented towards the build-it-yourself. You know, so he kind of fit into that philosophy that I have. And it was kind of ironic, I thought, that all these years later, uh, I'm in amateur radio, and I'm reading the magazine of the same guy, and you know something? I started 
reading those editorials, and it is amazing how much smarter Wayne Green had gotten in those 20 years. <laughs> so some of that stuff that used to PO me, all of a sudden, it didn't, it didn't sound quite as crazy. Now, don't get me wrong. Wayne was always, always out there and had some opinions on things that were, you know, at least beyond what would be the norm and a lot of people might even consider crazy. And, you know, he certainly did assess a lot of things that were outside of the norm and would get people certainly talking about it. And I never had figured out, you know, exactly how much of that was just the showman in him knowing that any PR is good PR. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it, it, this, it seems interesting, though, that I was in the middle of another kind of technological thing. There were a lot of people interested in computers that also jumped on to that no-code tech kind of thing. And that was another time period where lots of interesting things were, were happening in terms of digital modes for communication. Uh, I mentioned in the blog post that, you know, it, those geeks back in the 70s have really taken over the world. And in the 70s was when amateur radio operators were first beginning to get on to VHF with FM radio frequency modulated rather than AM, which had been up until the early 70s primarily, and started inventing this idea of having a smaller handy talkie with lower power that they could carry around on their belts and use that to talk to a repeater system that was way up high on a tower or on the top of a building, or if you're lucky enough on a mountain, it was somewhere where there's mountains, and it would repeat that signal out so that everybody in town could hear it, and it was a way for them to be mobile around town with a low-powered radio. And lo and behold, here we are all these years later, and we all carry around these things called cell phones, partially built on that whole idea of the repeaters that ham radio operators developed in the 70s, along with digital modes of communication that ham radio operators, once again, always the experimenters, and out there doing the things to figure out how all this stuff works and uh, and continuing on with that experimentation to this day. And so everybody is walking around, and the geeks really have conquered the world, and I'll tell you why, because up until the time that he quit Microsoft, you know, the geek was the richest guy in the world. Now, wasn't he? Mr. Gates? And Mr. Jobs didn't do too badly either. Uh, and a lot of those guys back then, you know. But the other thing is, everybody's walking around with a handy talkie, and we Back in the 90s, they used to carry them on their belt, and at least for a while there, some of those handy talkies, i.e. cell phones that they had on their belt, even had push-to-talk switches. So <laughs> it's kind of funny how these things develop. As far as amateur radio operators developing new ideas that are going to be the commercial enterprises of the future, there's a real interesting thing going on, and if I start doing this, or maybe if I get a hold of a guy... Uh, who works downtown, uh, and I think I can get him for an interview. So maybe I'll do that sometime. Uh, in terms of mesh networking, there's a real interesting group of people that are working on this thing. And I got introduced to it by a guy named Bob Heil, who is famous in the rock and roll world for microphones that he's developed through the years. And developing mic he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because he is so famous for developing microphones that were used by uh, rock and roll people through the years. He, in fact, developed the system that was that uh, that system with the, the tube that goes into his mouth and 
you play the guitar, and the sound of the guitar goes into the mouth, and then you wow, 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 that whole system, right? He developed that. can't remember for the life of me right now who it is that did that, but I think you might know, even from that weird description, who it is I'm talking about. And so Bob Heil does a web-based show on ham radio, and he was talking about this. He has a summer home kind of a place that they live part of the year, just south of Springfield, uh, Missouri. And uh, he does uh, his radio show, his web show out of there, as well as in Illinois. And he was talking about the local group down there, Green County, I would assume, because that's where Springfield is. And he went to a meeting where they were taking a Linksys router. Now, this is your typical blue Linksys, Cisco, you know, those those Linksys routers, the ones that we all liked, right, because there was one that had the L on the end of it, an extra memory, so we could actually ROM it and give it a better operating system, right? Uh, that kind of router, okay? Yes, those old, you know, G speed routers, or even, you know, maybe slower than that, right? The uh, the routers that nobody wants anymore, the ones that if you go to your average uh, thrift store, run by, you know, insert your favorite uh, charity group here, you probably can find two or three of them in the what passes for the electronic section of those for very little money. You may have some of these sitting in your pile of carp, it's an anagram, uh, in your basement or attic or wherever it is you keep your pile of stuff. They take those and they replace the 20 megahertz crystal. And if you know anything about radio frequencies and how radios work, you have a base crystal that all the frequencies are based on. And even though it's 2.4 megahertz or, you know, 5, uh, 0.2, you know, whatever it is that is the frequencies that you're working with, it's all based on a crystal for locking that in, right? Back in the 60s, uh, you used to have to have crystals for your amateur radio transmitter when you were a novice operator to guarantee that you weren't drifting off band and interfering with TV at your neighbor's house and things like that. So you had to have crystal-controlled radios. But the crystals involved were never up in the frequency that you were actually talking about. It was always a very low-frequency crystal, but it, then it multiplies that frequency, and that's how radio systems work. Uh, they take the 20 megahertz crystal that is in those right now, or comes from them, from Linksys that way, right? And they replace it with a very common, very readily available 16 megahertz crystal. Now, what that does is there's an amateur radio band that's just below the typical frequency band used by the Wi-Fi system or the license-free Wi-Fi, right, that we use here. And by replacing that crystal with the lower frequency crystal, it moves some of the channels, not all of them, but some of the channels out of the normal range where they're used by Wi-Fi hotspots and down into the amateur radio frequency range, which then means if you're an amateur radio operator and the technician class has full privileges in this area here, and besides that, you don't even have to know code now even for HF radio. Uh, but the, uh, the range that it moves it into 
as an amateur radio operator, it's fully legal for you to run that at a higher power. So I don't know if you do this, but you when you run that alternate WWRT or tomato tomato on your your router and you bump up the power, technically speaking, you're illegal. Okay? You don't have permission to run that higher power. But here you would because you're in the amateur radio band. So they boost up the power of these things, put better antennas on them too, and run these in their house. And there's actually a group over in Johnson County where this guy who works close by to be downtown Kansas City, uh, he lives out there. And there's a mesh network that they're running out there where those, those routers are talking to one another and passing back information and actually forming host files uh, on the that can be then downloaded to your computer so that you can mesh network and talk to other people on the network. So we're talking about an internet without an internet backbone here. And this is amateur radio operators that are out there going through this, you know, experimental stage with this protocol and developing this this kind of software and hardware combination. And the software undoubtedly will then eventually become a open standard, and depending on the license, of course, uh, it may become a commercial kind of standard or something close to it. The lessons learned, right, will be used for commercial mesh networking in the not too distant future. So, always experimenting, always out there at the edge of technology. Even though they're not building their own radios the way we used to, the amateur radio operators are still out there experimenting around, at least some of them. And it was always a small group of people who were really doing the experimenting forever in amateur radio. And so, all tying it back to Wayne Green, he got me involved in the, the amateur radio technology and I was reading his editorials again and really, really enjoying those. And really, as I said in my blog post, Wayne Green taught me a lot, especially in those editorials. I learned interesting things, and it was always entertaining, and it really was always educational. Even as wild ideas, there was always that grain of truth that you could take away from it. And I learned not just things about technology from Wayne Green, but I also learned things about philosophy and even religion. It's kind of an interesting story about how he got into publishing. Byte was not the first magazine that he started publishing. When he saw the microcomputers come along, he started Byte because he knew he had a good thing, and he knew that he could make money publishing articles, feeding people information they needed to know about this new PC revolution. And Wayne was the kind of thinker that would see this, that would recognize it for what it was, and then find a way to serve that, that need and you know, give his customers a product that they wanted to have. In other words, Wayne Green was doing capitalism the right way. He was paying attention to his customers and giving them a product that fulfilled their needs for information, because this is all pre-internet, right? Uh, he actually published his first magazine way back in the 60s, when he was a member of the Porsche Car Porsche Porsche uh, Car Owners Association in the U.S., he owned a Porsche, and uh, he started publishing a magazine for that 
Association. So he had had experience at publishing magazines before and dealing with advertisers and all that kind of thing, and he put that to use then when the computer revolution came along and started a plethora of magazines. And I am really, to a great extent, in many aspects of my life, not just technology, but keep in mind, the things I learned from Wayne Green's magazine gave me the basis for the way that I have made a living for the past 40 years, okay? Uh, but also in terms of philosophy and really make me the person that I am today to a great extent. And so I was very sad to hear about his passing. And I do, you know, I do think that there's a lot of people who Wayne Green had an effect on may not realize the name, but really, really did have an effect on the computer industry that it's really hard to stress at this point exactly how much that was. So rest in peace, Wayne, although I'm not sure there's going to be that much resting. After all, he was sure he was going someplace else and was ready to go, and I do too. If I have anything that I uh, regret in life, I wished I could have gotten to meet Wayne Green in real life instead of just getting to know him through his writing. Uh, but, you know, next time, right, in that next place where he is, and I look forward to reading all of the wonderful publications that he probably, since he's never going to get tired and he's not going to get, you know, uh, not going to have any pain anymore, whatever pain he was going through, uh, the energy that he had here in this mortal coil, you would think that uh, there's going to be a lot of good reading when we get up there. So, 73, which is what we amateur radio operators say at the end, Wayne Green, Silent Key, here in 2013 at 91 years old. 73, Wayne, and we will look forward to that next QSO. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binref.com. All Binref projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share Alike, 3.0 license.